0: You can keep your Bible open to Psalm 119. We'll be looking at a number of different passages this morning. but We'll be looking at the life, the ministry of Ulrich Zwingli. And as I mentioned, Psalm 44, saying that we are to tell our children what God has done. I typically don't like preaching unless it is on a text of Scripture. But it is extremely important that the people of God understand what has happened in history and be not ignorant of the thousands of years that have passed before us. And the Reformation was a time when God worked mightily. So it is very important that we understand what God did and draw lessons from it. Now this morning I know Brother Walters is our resident historian, so, if I make a mistake, brother, please don't stand up and preach against me. But Ulrich Zwingli, once again, Psalm 119 and verse 112. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. On January 1st, 1484, in the small, Picturesque alpine village of Wildhaus, within two months of the birth of Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli was born. And his life is an amazing story of a man who gave himself entirely, as the psalmist said, to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. Let's have a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing as we look at this man's life. Our Father in heaven, we pray that Thou wouldst lift up our souls to Thee, not to a man, to what Thou hast done in this man's life. And to teach us, Lord, not to forget what, have got, what our fathers have gone through, but Lord, to learn from them, to take courage this day, Lord, bless thy people, and bless thy word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, Ulrich Zwingli was born to a very good family. His father was actually a mayor, and his mother was the sister of a Swiss churchman. But not only was Zwingli born to an excellent mother and father and given a pious and wonderful upbringing but he was a very pious man himself it was said about Zwingli when he was a young man that he could not lie like with George Washington Zwingli could not lie not only was he very pious though he was also brilliant when he was 10 years old he knew more than the teacher in his local town and so he was sent to study in the city of Basel By age 14, he went to college and studied in Bern under Switzerland's best classical scholar and Latin poet. By the time he was 18, he left Bern and he traveled to Vienna to study at university at 18. And then he returned to Basel where he received his Master of Arts. Now Zwingli went into the priesthood and his first station as a priest was in a place called Glarus. Glarus. Beginning in 1506, he served there for 10 years until 1516 as the priest of the town of Glarus. Now, at this time, Zwingli was not converted. And as he would administer the sacraments, as many in the days of the late Middle Ages, as we thought about this morning, he administered them in ignorance. He thought nothing of the mass being a represent, not merely a representation of the body and blood of Christ, but being the literal body and the literal blood of the Lord Jesus. He would have been fine with the power of the papacy. He would have been perfectly fine with veneration of relics. And as he preached in Glarus, as a good Catholic, he preached mostly morality and patriotism as well. You see, Zwingli was a real patriot As you'll see in his life, he was a real Swissman. But Zwingli, although he had a comfortable career path in the church, was arrested by God and by God's providence. It was at this place in Glarus when God began to change his life. You see, Glarus was a military camp. And Zwingli joined the military. He joined them not as a fighter, but as a chaplain. And as a chaplain, he joined a fight for the Holy Church. And in 1515, he and an army met King Francis I of France in a battle. But the result of the battle was absolutely tragic. More than 10,000 Swiss died that day. And this had a profound impact on Zwingli. Zwingli said, If only our sons could grow up and not be killed, murder, murder. What has happened to the Confederacy that her sons and daughters should be sold? Despair, despair, wretchedness, wretchedness, sin, sin. You see, what happened to Zwingli was he became disillusioned with the church. Because here he was fighting for the Roman Catholic Church. And he saw men slaughtered before his eyes. And it made him question everything. It made him question fundamental things. If he was wrong about war, about fighting for the papacy, could he be wrong about the very things he stood for and preached? Could he be wrong about the very things he believed? And, you know, what he did was, is he went back and he started reading the Bible. Erasmus, a scholar of those days, not a, a, a reformer, but a humanist scholar, he wanted a moral change in the Roman Catholic Church. He put out a Greek New Testament. And the Greek New Testament was like a ticking bomb waiting to go off. Because this Greek New Testament would unleash the Word of God to the hearts of the Reformers and throughout Europe. And so Zwingli went back to Glarus, purchased quickly a copy of the Greek New Testament, and began to read it voraciously. So thrilled was he with what he was reading that he read it all in Greek. And not only did he read it in Greek, but he wrote the Pauline epistles by hand in Greek, and then he memorized the entire corpus of the Pauline epistles in Greek. Such was his absolute hunger and thrill for the Word of God. Zwingli's conversion is hard to pin down. It would have been around the time that he came to understand, as he wrote in 1516, that led by the Word and the Spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside all these human teachings, and that's in quotations, and to learn the doctrine of God direct from His own Word. It was when Zwingli read the Word of God, and it so gripped his soul, that he obeyed the words of the psalmist. How shall a young man cleanse himself from his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart. That I might not sin against God. He memorized the Pauline epistles in Greek. Such was his hunger. And we, brothers and sisters, have the Word of God in front of us. And what is our hunger? What is our treasure of the Word? But it was when Zwingli realized it's the Word of God alone that is the infallible judge and the sole authority for faith and practice that he saw the truth of what would be known as Protestantism. Now, from Glarus, he traveled to another city called Einzelden, where he became the priest of what was known as the Shrine of the Black Virgin. As you can imagine, this was a very corrupt place. This Black Virgin was reported to have fallen from heaven, do all sorts of miracles, and of course, give grace, and through veneration of her, take years off of purgatory. So people flocked to this black virgin. Above the black virgin were the words, Here the full, of re- full remission of sins may be obtained. Here the full remission of sins may be obtained. You see, Zwingli was absolutely outraged at this point in his life, knowing the word of God, by the foolishness of the church and the people. People are coming from towns and villages and cities all over the place on pilgrimages to see this black virgin and to venerate this statue and to receive grace. And Zwingli sought everywhere for some way to turn the people away from their superstition. And he found it in one text of Scripture. Luke 5, verse 24 which says, The Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. And Zwingli said, armed with this powerful text, there is only one individual who has authority to forgive sins. And it is the Son of Man. The Pope has no authority The priests have no authority. The relics have no ability. Only the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins. And then the realization to the people. The Son of Man has the ability to forgive your sins. What is the need then of all of this relic veneration? When the Son of Man has power to forgive your sins. And it is to the Son of Man that you must go for forgiveness. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God, has the ability to forgive sin. No preacher, nobody, no other God, no other way. No other path, no other means, absolutely nothing can forgive sins but Jesus, the Son of Man. But He can. And praise God, as Zwingli found, He would forgive sins. So He attacked the black virgin. He attacked the monks. He attacked this Roman Catholic superstition. And of course, He was attacked by the monks and by the monasteries because they received quite a nice bit of money from the worship or the veneration of the black virgin. They even threatened to poison him, to silence him. But Zwingli refused to stop. He refused to stop and he preached. And the people rallied behind him so much that he was actually called to be the preacher of the great minster in Zurich. And Zurich was a huge city. And to be a preacher in the great minster was an awesome responsibility. And it said much to his popularity so Zwingli was sent to the great minster and became the people's priest in Zurich. But when he walked into the pulpit on Saturday, January 1st, 1519, on his 35th birthday, he announced something that was absolutely eruptive. When he stepped into that pulpit, he announced that he would be done with preaching the myths of popery. That he would be done with preaching medieval theologians' ideas and that beginning that day he would go verse by verse expositionally through the book of Matthew and then through the entirety of the New Testament. you have any idea how absolutely radical that was? Nobody anywhere in all of Europe preached verse by verse through the word of God. No one. And for years and years and years and years, no one had opened the book and preached verse by verse through the word of God. It had never been done. And Zwingli stood up in the pulpit and said, I will preach the word of God. The preaching of Zwingli could be summed up in, I think, four headings. First, it was intensely scriptural. Zwingli followed the mandate of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. And so, Zwingli preached expositionally. The Bible, and the Bible alone, was his text. You see, Zwingli felt that if he would have taken a text and made it his message, choosing a different text, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, that it was possible for him to misrepresent. The text, or to miss something in the word. Now, it does not mean that preachers taking a text Lord's Day by Lord's Day is not preaching the word of God. That's how Spurgeon preached. But Zwingli felt that he needed to preach verse by verse, and as Isaiah said, line upon line, precept upon precept, to teach and preach the word of God. Zwingli wanted to be nothing more than a mouthpiece for the Bible. He wanted to let the Bible speak. He wanted the context to explain the text. He wanted the Bible to be preached to the people. Not his thoughts, not his ideas. The Bible to be preached to the people. And nothing but the Word of God. That's what his desire was. And this was the same as Calvin, the reformer in France. He also preached verse by verse. When he was exiled from his pulpit and kicked out, and then he was given the opportunity to come back. He stepped right onto the pulpit and he preached from the verse he left off from. Preaching of Zwingli. The preaching of Zwingli was intensely scriptural. Thoroughly, secondly, excuse me, it was thoroughly Christ-centered. Zwingli said, It is my chief object to preach Christ from the fountain and to insert Christ into the heart. The Apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians. I've determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the apostolic preaching was to preach Christ. And Zwingli understood that it was not his task to just preach the things that he wanted to preach, maybe perhaps his hobby horses. It wasn't his, his job to preach those things. Preeminently, he was a preacher of Christ. Not only a preacher of his, not a preacher of his sect. Not a preacher of his particular theological beliefs even. He would preach those, but what was preeminent in his preaching was Christ. He understood that all of doctrine, if you think about a a bicycle wheel, it's like the hub of all of the truth of Scripture is Christ. The spokes of all the truth come out of Christ. You can't understand anything in the Bible outside of its relationship to Christ. And so Zwingli would not just tell the people to be more moral, like the Pharisees. Be more moral. But Zwingli would say, the only ability that you have to be moral, to live a righteous life, is when Christ gives you a new heart, and by His indwelling Spirit, He gives you the strength to live morally. And He would not just preach the law before the people, but He would preach the law, and then apply the bomb, which was Christ, to say Christ has fulfilled the law, and Christ has borne the wrath of a broken law. It was thoroughly Christ-centered. Third, it was fearlessly bold. When Zwingli preached, he denounced everybody. It was like the prophets of old. He did not care who he denounced. He was like Elijah, who came out of nowhere and said, I am speaking to you about the rain that will not come, because I stand before Jehovah. He stood before Jehovah, and before the Lord God Almighty... He was not intimidated by men. And Zwingli was such a man that he was not intimidated by men. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 28, verse 1, "...the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion." And Zwingli was bold as a lion. He would preach against the nobility, he would preach against the monks, he would preach against anybody. It didn't matter who they were or where they were from. Zwingli would preach against it. It didn't matter what sin was popular in that day. It didn't matter if he was threatened with death. He preached and he didn't care what anybody thought. Now he wasn't Zwingli, understand, was actually quite a, a kind and gracious individual. As we'll see later on. He wasn't a bombastic preacher that Luther was. But Luther would not stand back from preaching against sin. And this is the kind of preaching we need today. Fearless, bold preaching against sin. Then fourth and finally, his preaching was clear and understandable. Zurich was made up of mostly ignorant people. Zwingli didn't get up and preach in such a way that the normal common people couldn't understand him. He preached in a very clear and simple way. Some of his greatest admirers were children. And and by doing this, he gives us us a pattern to follow. And it's a very difficult thing for a preacher to preach deep and clear. Very hard. It's a mark of a great preacher. But Zwingli was able to preach in such a way that the most ignorant could walk out with something and the most learned could could be richly fat. Well, Zwingli preached in Zurich for quite a while, But while he preached in Zurich, something else happened to him that impacted him greatly. While he was on vacation, something came to Zurich. It was the plague. Now as I spoke of in Sunday school, the plague wiped out a third of Europe. And the plague came to Zurich. Now this shows us something of Zurich's excuse me, of Zwingli's character that when Zwingli heard about the plague, do you know what he did? He went home. People were fleeing. They didn't want to be anywhere near the plague. But his people were in danger. And so Zwingli went back to Zurich and he buried the dead of the great minster in Zurich. He sat with the sick and preached the gospel to them, comforted the ill, and then he contracted the plague himself. And he nearly died. brothers and sisters, we see an example here of Jesus in John 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The Lord Jesus, he came from glory to this earth to kneel with lepers, to touch their leprous bodies, to bear the sin of his people as, as Zwingli, finally took the disease of his congregants. Jesus took the sin of his people. But love, almighty love, constrained Jesus to do it for his people. And that ought to be the love that is in the heart of a preacher, of a pastor, of a minister for his people. That if they're dying and they're sick, whatever happens to them, that they would put their own life at risk in order that, their, that his people might receive the blessings of the gospel. This, you see, a great character in Zwingli. Now, I want to say something about Zwingli as well. Zwingli, when he came out of the plague, was like a man on fire. He had seen eternity at his doorstep. And he had almost died himself. And everything changed for Zwingli. I don't know about you, but I know that things in my life that have been great afflictions and trials have brought me to a place where I see eternally, eternity, excuse me, a little bit closer. I'm sure it's been the case with you. You think about a potter. The Lord is a potter. And we are clay. It is when He heats up that clay that He makes it strong. And it is when He puts us to the fire of affliction that we come out strong. And this happened to Zwingli. When he saw the black death wiping out multitudes of people, he came out of that like a man sent from God, like a prophet of God. Eternity gripped his soul. We get so comfortable with day-to-day life. Eternity doesn't grip our souls. And God knew that to make Zwingli into the man he needed to be, he needed to see death. He needed to have the plague and almost die himself so that he would be a man gripped with eternity and with the weight of eternal things. And so Zwingli set out to bring reform in Zurich, to bring the city of Zurich under conformity to the Word of God. Now, Zwingli did not seek to bring reform in Zurich like Luther sought to bring reform. Luther was like a bull in a china shop. He was the man with a hammer. He didn't care what, ha- what mess he made. He was just going to break everything and destroy everything in his path to reformation. But Zwingli was different. Zwingli was like a doctor with a scalpel. He didn't rush the people to reform. In fact, Zwingli said that hearts needed to be changed first by the word. And Zwingli was convinced that if he preached verse by verse through the scripture, it would change the people. He was convinced that the word of God would do the job. He was convinced that if he preached word verse by verse through the scriptures, that at some point the people themselves in the church would cry out for reform. He didn't force it. He didn't change things rapidly. He slowly preached and taught the Word of God. And this is something for us to learn. Sometimes when we want to see changes made, perhaps in our children, um, whatever the case might be, people in general, we've got to force it. We've got to make it happen now. If you don't bend, then you're going to be in trouble. But Zwingli knew, First, I need to preach the Word. Show the people I love them. Show the people that they can trust me. And as the Word is preached to them, their eyes will be opened. He took the long view, not the short view, took the long view. He didn't see his ministry in Zurich as, If they don't turn around right now, I'm out of here. Zwingli said, This is going to be my life's work. If it takes 10, 20, 30 years, whatever, I'm taking the long view. I'm going to preach and teach the Word of God and wait for God to change hearts. This was Zwingli's view. kind of reminds me, instead of Luther with like a massive hammer breaking stone up, Zwingli was like a stream. Over years and years, Slowly carving into the rock. And the interesting thing about Zwingli is what he did in Zurich had an incredible longevity, even more so than much of what Luther did because of the way he went about reforming. Well, people were furious with Zwingli. The monks were furious. Everybody's furious. They didn't want Zwingli to bring reform. They said he was a spy from France or from the Pope, even perhaps, strangely enough. He was a heretic, he was the Antichrist. In 1520, freedom was given by the city to preach the Word of God, which tells you there was no freedom to preach the Word of God before that. 1521, it was required by the city council that all preaching must be from the Scriptures alone. On October 10th, 1522, Zwingli resigned as the people's priest in Zurich, and then the city council hired him as preacher to the whole city. Such was his popularity and love by the people. When he was accused of not listening to the bishops, he said, Nothing is easier, for they say nothing. Zwingli was accused by a bishop named the Bishop of Constance, Johann Faber. He was a Roman Catholic apologist. And Zwingli told him, If you want to accuse me, let's have a debate. You bring the Word of God, I'll bring the Word of God, and we'll see what's scriptural. And so they had this debate, known as the First Zurich Disputation. And on January 29, 1523, 600 people came to meet in the Zurich Hall. The chief accuser, Johann Faber, the Bishop of Constance. Zwingli wrote up 67 articles explaining what he believed, and he came to this debate with the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Latin as well. And let me suffice it to say that he absolutely trounced the bishop. The bishop had nothing to say. Zwingli had memorized, as I said, the epistles of Paul. The bishop had absolutely no ground to stand on. And Zwingli would go to the bishop and he would say, you show me the verse in the Bible that teaches this. And if he couldn't show him, then Zwingli would sound his victory. For things that you believe, let me just ask you: For things in I that we believe, can you point to a verse in Scripture to support that? Whatever preaching you hear, you need to ask, "What saith the Scriptures? Where is it in the Word of God? Point me to chapter and verse, please." It doesn't matter what. I don't care. We don't. It doesn't matter. We, we didn't care what it was. He didn't care what it was. Chapter and verse, please. It doesn't matter. You might be in a church and you you believe things basically because everybody else does. Maybe even in this church. Chapter and verse. Where is it in the Word of God? Now, we may come in and believe things that maybe are preached in this church, but do you have the conviction yourself that it's in the Word? Zwingli trounced the Roman Catholic bishop decrying the praying of the saints, the Roman Catholic priesthood, salvation by works, in purgatory, whatever, because he knew the Scriptures. And when the people of God are attacked, it is imperative that we know the Scriptures. When we're doing evangelism and speaking to people, when we're talking to somebody that is, say, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon on the streets or somebody who doesn't believe in the Word of God, it is imperative that we know the Scriptures. If we don't know the Scriptures... We're not going to be able to defend the gospel. But here is the rub. If we're not in the business of defending the gospel, we will never feel how important it is to know the scriptures. If we're not speaking to people about the gospel, if we're not regularly conversing with people, we're not going to feel the weight of what it is, the importance, excuse me, to know the word of God. So Zwingli sought to bring reform Reformation was slow in Zurich, but it eventually came. Zwingli set up a school to train preachers called the School of the Prophets. You see, nobody knew how to preach the Bible. Nobody knew. Not one person. And so Zwingli had to set up a school. Today it's known as the University of Zurich, by the way. The School of the Prophets. And you may sit there and think this morning, that's amazing! Nobody knew how to preach the Bible! Well, in some ways, sometimes it's true today. The Bible was hidden in the days of the Reformation. It was kept from the people. It was preached in Latin, and we understand that to be the case. Tyndale first put out an English version of, of some of the scriptures, and, and then Wycliffe of the whole of the Bible in English. But we understand that, for the most part, the scriptures were kept from the people. So they're in gross ignorance. But today, it's the direct opposite. Scripture's everywhere, you can buy it in Walmart. You buy it wherever you want to go, go anywhere and buy the Word of God. But you know what is wrong with us today? We don't read the Word. Whereas they were starving and had no Word, we have no appetite and we have the Word. And today it's the same way. There are preachers that don't preach the Word of God. And that's why there needs to be seminaries to train See, the Reformation is still needed today. Do we have a hunger for the Word of God? We have the Word. Do we read the Word? We pore over the Word. Do we seek to conform our lives to the Word? That is Zwingli's heritage. And at this school, every day in the summer, beginning at 7 a.m., because the exclusion of Friday and Saturday, or Sunday, excuse me, they all gathered, the ministers and the students, for study. And they would take a passage of Scripture, they would look at it in the Greek, or if it was Hebrew in the Hebrew, they would make textual comments and they would preach a sermon on it. And in that way, they work through the entire New Testament, going verse by verse, unlocking Scripture, wanting to know what every line meant, what every chapter meant, what every book meant, and then they unleashed it, the Word of God. And that's what the duty of the preacher is today. To unlock the truth of Scripture and then unleash the Scripture. It's the Word that we preach. And therein, a generation of missionaries and preachers and teachers were raised up that knew the Word of God. But also, Mass and the images were dealt with. Now, again, Zwingli was slow in his reform and he actually allowed the Mass and images to remain for a little bit, which is strange. But he felt that if he rushed the people too quickly, he could break them. Now just see his gentleness there. It's something to learn. Now the mass was destroyed, or the mass was done away with, images were abolished. The people in 1524, 15, 1524 they destroyed um, relics, images of saints, crucifixes, candles. They burned altars. They burned down gold and silver and they paid back the people who had lost their money and paying for indulgences. So you can see the Reformation was horizontal, it was Godward, it was, excuse me, vertical, and it was horizontal, it was manward. They were seeking to pay back the people and to treat them in the right way. And so they destroyed the images, and they whitewashed the walls of the church. Zwingli even took the organs out of the church and actually refused to have congregational singing because he felt that music could become an idol. Now, I certainly believe as Luther would as well, Calvin, that he went too far in removing congregational singing and even removing an instrument that could aid singing. But just see for a moment there the carefulness with which he dealt with the subject of music and the looseness with which it is dealt with today. You can at least see that very clearly. Now, Zwingli also with cha- changed the mass. They abolished The Mass, and on one fateful day in 1525, bread rolls were placed on wooden plates. This was absolutely radical for the Roman Catholics to have this happen. And a jug of wine on a table in the middle of the church, and all the people could come and take the bread and take the wine. In those days, people weren't allowed the wine, only the priests. And the bread was not lifted up as the body of Christ. It was not worshipped. The wine was not considered to be the blood, but they did it in worship of Christ, remembering his sacrifice and the covenant with which his death brought them in. And so Zwingli brought reform to Zurich. Zwingli brought reform to the city because he was a man Who sought to bring everything under conformity to the Word of God. That's his heart. When you look at his life, he's the man who sought to bring absolutely everything under conformity to the Word of God. And when he looked at Zurich, this city, he, he was he was concerned not only with the churches, with the with the mass, the images and the relics, but the whole city. He wanted the state to be reformed. He wanted the the leaders, the nobility, the heads of, of the land to be reformed as well. Everything to Zwingli had to come under the conformity of the word of God. And he was new at this. He didn't come like we do with confessions and et cetera and saying, oh, we know now what we ought to be believing. He came to the word and sought to put everything to the touchstone of scripture. We ought to do the same. It said that the Reformed churches should be reformed and always reforming. We ought never to get to the place where we think that we're perfect with absolutely everything that we hold on everything. We are fallible. We are all fallible. Now, not cardinal things, but we ought to always in our lives, no matter what we do, put it to the touchstone of Scripture. Please don't take my word for it. If you to take, for you to take my word is for you to be, nothing, to be nothing more than a middle-aged Roman Catholic who said yes to the priest. And I am no priest. You are to take this book and to judge everything a preacher preaches by it. Everything. By the Word of God. Now, before I come to the end of Zwingli's life, I have to touch on two controversies. Not particularly excited to touch on them, but I have to. Because if I don't, then Brother Walter's give me a hard time. He had two controversies, big controversies. One was with Luther. Now I can't get into the specifics of their debate, but I'll try to just a little bit. There are some lessons for us to learn. Now Zwingli and Luther were were similar, but they were not the same. Um, I should note that Zwingli actually said that he did not receive his teaching from Luther. Indip- he got it independently. And it shows you how God was moving. Zwingli came up with the same truths as Luther on the cardinal things. And he was never aided by Luther. Zwingli wrote, I will not be called by Luther's name, a Lutheran. For I have read little of his teaching. I will have no name except of my Captain Christ. So Zwingli did not get his teaching from Luther. He got it from the Bible. Isn't it amazing that two men never met each other. Got the same teaching from the Bible. It's amazing. They never met until 1529 where they met at Marburg Castle. And there Zwingli and Luther had a great meeting called the Marburg Colloquy. They discussed 15 articles. They agreed on 14 of them. Sola Scriptura. They believed that, that salvation is by grace, that works of human beings had no merit, that faith alone received it, that Christ was the head of the church, that He had satisfied the wrath of God and all, the, all that was necessary for a man to be just. But when they got to one issue, they disagreed. And it was the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. They had a great disagreement on this. Now, Luther's view was, I'm going to use a big word only because it's good to know it, consubstantiation. Basically, Luther said that the physical body of Jesus was present in the bread and in the cup. Luther said that. Luther was wrong, but Luther said that. And Luther debated this point with Zwingli. He turned to Mark 14.22, or what is said in Mark 14.22, This is my body. Remember the Lord Jesus was giving, giving the Last Supper to the disciples? This is my body. And Luther actually wrote in the dust on the table, This is my body. In German, of course, this is my body. And Zwingli disagreed. Zwingli said, no, 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 no. This is my body doesn't mean the bread is actually his body. I mean, he said, when Jesus says, I'm the vine, does that mean he's a tree? It's figurative. They represent his body, they represent his blood. And throughout this debate, Luther was very unreasonable. And he didn't have a good spirit. And he would point to what he wrote "This This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. And Zwingli reasoned with him and he said, But Luther, how can the body of Christ be all over the world at one time? Aren't you giving to the body of Christ attributes of deity? The body's not the body's human. It's not all present. You can't say Christ's body is in all these churches all over the world. The Bible doesn't say this is my body to be taken literally, Luther. It's to be taken figuratively. There's not a body of Jesus in that bread or, in that, or the blood in the cup, Luther. And Luther said, this is my body. He would not be moved. He would not reason. This is my body. He got up. He refused to shake hands with Zwingli, said, this man is of another spirit. And actually, when Zwingli died, Luther said, if God had saved Zwingli, he had done so above and beyond the rule. Luther was a hard-headed German. Luther was wrong and we need to learn from this must be careful of always always be careful being obstinate unreasonable and schismatic Luther said if you don't agree with me you're not a Christian if you don't agree with me on the Lord's Supper and he was dead wrong if you don't agree with me I'm not going to shake your hand I don't even think you're saved brethren We ought to learn from this. We're reformed in this church. We hold to Calvinistic doctrine. We ought never, ever to think that people who are not reformed are not saved. We ought never to think that way. And Presbyterians, I believe that. We believe that. We hold that. We ought never to think that Baptists are not saved, that we won't shake their hand, that we won't give them honor. That is a wrong spirit even as free Presbyterians we believe in what we hold we thank God for it but we ought never to get such a spirit ever such a spirit that like Luther we say you don't agree with me on on this I won't shake your hand I won't even think you're a Christian that's not right God has many people in different places doesn't mean we agree but we ought never to have the spirit that Luther did I think we can really learn from that second controversy that Zwingli had and the last is his controversy with the Anabaptists. Now, I'm not happy to tell you about this. This is a very, very sad blight on the career of Zwingli. But I have to tell you to give you a full view of this man. There was a group of more radical reformers in Zurich that took Zwingli's teachings and they wanted to move more quickly. They didn't like his waiting for reform and they took some of his teachings to what they believed were, were the, the, the um, necessary consequence. Well, Zwingli, if it's the Bible alone, where does it teach infant baptism? Well, Zwingli, if it's the Bible alone, where does it say that the church and state are one? And so the Anabaptists fought with Zwingli. Now, Zwingli's script, strict adherence to Scripture was taken to its necessary consequence by the Anabaptists but it's amazing to see that Zwingli on this point failed he really couldn't give an answer to the Anabaptists now he had somewhat of an answer but he really didn't wasn't convincing enough for them and so one such man Conrad Grebel refused to present his son for infant baptism because it was mandatory and then a man named Blorock asked Grebel would you baptize me Believer's baptism? And he did. In fact, then many believers got rebaptized. People withheld their infants from infant baptism. They broke and turned over baptismal fonts and they said, the Bible doesn't say infant baptism's there. We're not going to believe it. I won't do it. I won't give my kids to it. It's not in the Word of God. And so Zwingli tried to convince them. I will make this point too. Even Zwingli at one point, early in his career, he was a believer's baptist. And then later on he turned back to infant baptism. Zwingli could not fight against the Anabaptists. He believed in infant baptism for two reasons. Just briefly so you understand. Because he saw church and state as one, he saw if you're born into the state, you're born into the church. If you're born into the state and you're born into the church, what's the sign of the membership of God's church, of membership to the covenant? Baptism to Zwingli. He said, there were unbloody signs. Excuse me, there are bloody signs in the old co- under the Old Covenant, circumcision, the Passover. And there are unbloody signs under the New. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So there's a covenant continuity. These children are a member of God's covenant and a member of the state, so they need to be baptized. He didn't see any salvation belonging to baptism by no means, but he saw that they should receive the sign that they were members of God's covenant. Zwingli could not turn the Anabaptists, and so he resorted to force. And I'm very sad to say that on January 5, 1527, an Anabaptist man named Felix Mance was punished by rebaptism. He was drowned in the icy waters of the River Limmat, while Zwingli and the other pastors of Zurich watched. Felix Mance's last words were, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. And you see, when these Anabaptists died, they weren't like the other heretics who died angrily or whatever. There was a peace about them. It shocked the people. And I'm sad to say that he also drowned women, not him personally, but through the state and even children. This is absolutely horrific. This is terrible. I will not make excuses for Zwingli. He was absolutely wrong in what he did. And personally, I share the sympathies of the Anabaptists. But I want you to understand why he did what he did to help you to understand this man. Zwingli, you have to understand, Zwingli's whole vision, his whole heart, and he was a good man, His whole heart was to bring all of Zurich under conformity to the Word of God and to bring all of Europe under conformity to the Word of God. For him, if there wasn't a church state, he felt that the Reformation would be destroyed. See? If the state couldn't be conformed to the Word of God too, Zwingli felt like the whole Reformation's destroyed. And so when the Anabaptists said there's no church state, and there's no no baptism for infants, Zwingli felt like they were attacking the very heart and thrust of the Reformation. And he held that they were heretics. Now, you have to understand, Calvin's Geneva also put some heretics to death. Now, I won't get into Calvin with Servetus. I know that's a big thing. And if you read some of what Calvin has said, there's actually a book that he wrote where he says he was against Servetus being burned. But... In these days, heretics were punished by the law. Okay? So today, murder is punishable by the death penalty. But in those days, heresy was just as bad as murder. Well, you think about it for a moment. It's terrible to take someone's life. It's punishable by death. But is it not more terrible for someone to spread lies that would damn people's souls? And so the state felt, if someone rejected the gospel the state church, If someone was a heretic, they had to be punished by death. So understand that for Zwingli, this was just the way things were in that day. Everybody punished and killed heretics. The Roman Catholic Church did. Even the Protestants did. It's not right. It's wrong. And it's the same with John Newton, his biography I spoke about a couple of Lord's Days before. When he became saved, he remained a slave trader for a little while. It was wrong. But everybody traded slaves. It wasn't until later the light broke in of the, of the word of God and he realized that what he did was terribly sinful. And remember Zwingli as he traveled back to Zurich loving, tenderly shepherding his flock even at, to the point of contracting the plague himself. See a man who was a tender shepherd who loved his people. A man who, who wanted to shake Luther's hand. A man who called Luther a brother. Let's see a man who was a good man, but a mistaken man. The Anabaptists were mistaken on things as well. Some of the crazy Anabaptist groups even got into um, excuse me polygamy. But understand, please, although Zwingli was wrong, let's understand him as a, as a child of his own age. We have to do that to be fair to Zwingli. Now I see a couple of lessons from this controversy and I'm only going to oh, I'm only going to talk about two, considering the time. First, we need to learn to be gracious towards brethren who have different views on baptism. I just want to make that point here. I don't know if there's an infant Baptist here or who's a believer's Baptist, but isn't it amazing that this many years ago, those who believe in infant baptism killed those who believed in believer's baptism. Isn't that sad? That's terrible. But that's how it was. Because they saw it as heresy. It's heresy. Brothers and sisters, we might not, of course, seek to do that because we've learned from history and the Word of God that we've understood it. They were in darkness, right? They didn't have the Word. They're trying to understand. We, we understand a church state is not the biblical teaching. But we can get an ugly heart, an ugly attitude towards people that are Paedo Baptists, infant Baptists, as for example, I'm a believers Baptist. Now, we have to be careful that we don't do again, redo the mistakes of our fathers, who were were so so bullheaded with regards to seeing anything other than their view that they actually called the Anabaptists heretics. And have them killed. We need to understand that. Brothers and sisters who come into this church, some may be infant Baptists, some may be believers Baptists, we can hold our views strongly. We can preach our views strongly. But we need to understand that these are brethren and they have a right to try to read and interpret the word for themselves. So we need to learn from that. Second, All God's men are men at best. I want you to get this, brothers and sisters. God used Peter mightily, but he denied the Lord three times. God used Abraham, but he lied multiple times. God used David, but he committed adultery and murder. God used Lot, when he almost fell into—you remember the situation with Sodom?y There with his children. But but Lot, it says in in, in I think Second Peter, was a was a believer. Now if you're in unrepentant sin God is going to chastise you He's not going to be using you Typically right But I want you to see That all men are men at best And if you look at yourself And you say There's no way I can be like Zwingli There's no way I can be like Peter, Paul, Moses Understand That all men Are men at best And all men Are in need of grace I think it's kind of amazing that God would use such flawed men as Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin even to preach a gospel of sovereign and free grace. You are flawed, and so am I. We are broken, we are sinful, but we serve a God of great grace, and the gospel is for sinners, not for saints. We are saints in the fact that we are made holy in Christ. We've been given a new nature, but we still have the battle with indwelling sin. And so look at Zwingli in this way. Don't throw him out as a man not worthy of our time. When one day people look back on us, what will they say as a creature of our day? The things that we turn a blind eye to. The things that we never shed a tear over. The things that we never brought into conformity with the Word. When Luther, excuse me, when Zwingli... Died. He was on the battlefield. A Swiss Catholic army marched towards Zurich with the intent of conquering, converting it back to Roman Catholicism. And Zwingli rose up. He put on his armor and he marched out as chaplain, but to defend Zurich from the onslaught of Rome. And as he went, I can imagine his heart was full of the faces and the souls of people in his city. He wanted them to be conformed to the Word. And he knew he had to fight because Rome, a member of a state church, if they conquered, they would institute the mass again, the images again, the papacy again. The gospel would be snuffed out and the Bible would be put back into the Latin and kept from the people. And so Zwingli marched out. And on the battle of, at the Battle of Capel, October 11, 1531, the Catholic army crushed him. He was mortally wounded from a rock to the head, spears or arrows to his legs, and he lay dying with his hands folded, praising Christ One of the soldiers found Zwingli and said, Pray to the Virgin Mary. And Zwingli shook his head, No. Others said, Wouldn't you like a priest? No. Until the captain of the army stabbed Zwingli to death, and they quartered his body, cut it into four pieces, burned him, mixed his ashes with the ashes of a pig, and with all sorts of terrible oaths and imprecations, through his ashes to the wind. The legend was that Zwingli's heart never died. Of course, that's a silly legend. But the truth is, is that Zwingli's real heart never died. When Zwingli died, his last words were, "They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul." And this is why I turned to Psalm 119, verse 112. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. At his last breath, it was the word of God that kept swing away. And although his ashes were sprinkled to the wind, The heart of Zwingli is the heart of any Christian, any man or woman, reformed or not reformed, any individual Christian that seeks with all their heart and soul and might to conform everything in their life, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, absolutely everything to the Word of God. Because that is the heart of Zwingli. May the Lord bless this biography of Ulrich Zwingli to our hearts this morning as we draw lessons from him let's have a word of prayer our father in heaven we thank thee for this man of God O lord we think of how the Jews must have sat around and told stories of Moses and of Joshua and of Elijah and now the New Testament church of Paul of Peter And today we think of one of our fathers, Zwingli. Lord, teach us to be men and women of the word. Oh God, keep us from being little Catholics to where we have the book, but we do not conform our lives to the book. We do not read the book. We do not meditate in the book. Oh God, burn our hearts up with conviction, that this word is what the world needs. Lord, help us for Jesus' sake. And bless thy people, everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.